and bring this up. We'll have a word of prayer. Uh, and then we will begin. Heavenly Father, <clears throat> thank you again for this opportunity we have to come together as a class and continue our study of the book of 2 Corinthians. We pray you'll uh, help us as we finish up in the next few weeks that uh, we'll be able to think clearly, recall what we studied. We'll be able to see how it applies to our lives and it'll help us uh, to be more obedient and to be more useful to you in the days ahead. Uh, we do pray for all of our friends that have been mentioned, for Dr. Snowberger, for John Roberts with the COVID and uh, um, Larry's daughter and uh, others who I can't remember, but uh, we, we're, we're we're for Jerry Bobbitt, we're just thankful that uh, uh, we have uh, better therapies now than we did some months ago and we had the vaccines. And uh, I'm certainly thankful that I've got the vaccine. And so uh, we're thankful for all this. We pray for uh, Lori Andrews and uh, for her situation as she tries to rehab and what she's going to have to go through. Pray for grace and healing for her and for Hugh Fairchild with his uh, cancer. Pray you'll help and strengthen him in the days ahead. So uh, bless our time together this evening as we look again into your word. And we're thankful for this privilege we have of knowing Christ, of serving him, and of learning more about him. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. <clears throat> we're looking at... Uh, Uh, let's see here. The next major section and the last major section in our study, uh, the first section, as we, as I've said, um, was chapters one, basically through seven, which was really a defense of Paul's ministry against criticism. And, uh, He's basically writing this in response to uh, what he has, his own experience when he went to Corinth and what's called the painful visit. And then uh, he goes back to Ephesus. He sends Titus with a letter we call the severe letter. He leaves Ephesus, heads north and goes up to Macedonia, probably to Philippi or somewhere. And there he meets Titus, and he has met Titus. Titus has given him a report, a good report generally, for the most part. And uh, so that, that allows him to uh, take up the subject of the collection for the poor Christians in Jerusalem which, Jerusalem, which we talked about last time. So he's encouraging the Corinthians to complete that collection. Titus is coming. A couple of other brothers are coming to get this complete so that it can be sent to Jerusalem uh, with representatives from the Corinthian church and other churches. And that's, of course, what happens <clears throat> ultimately. But apparently now in chapter 10, something has a new development has happened. And this is something we sort of see in several of Paul's long letters. Uh, it's, you know, probably Paul didn't write this letter all at one time. Um, as I say here, uh, when we come to chapter 10, there's a clear change of tone. This is probably best explained as Paul having heard some disturbing news about the Corinthian church after finishing chapters 1-9 and before sending the letter. So Paul is, uh, you know, when people used to write very long letters years ago, uh, they don't do much, obviously, these days. People send emails and texts, but they would often write part of it and then pick up the pen later and write another part and so forth. Uh, and so that's apparently what's happened here. He's written chapters one through nine, but he's heard some additional disturbing news. Uh, this concerns, you know, the outsiders mainly, people who have come in from the outside and are troubling the church. Uh, 
questioning Paul's authority. And that's primarily what chapters 10 through 13 are about. Paul is sort of defending himself, in particular his authority as an apostle to therefore command the church and direct the church that he did establish. So Paul takes up his pen, or I say dictation. Uh, we know from Paul's letters that he, he did use uh, someone to take dictation. The technical name for that is called an amanuensis. Paul, for instance, in Romans, uh, Tertius or Tertius is actually named as the guy who was writing the letter. <laughs> and this was common for ancient writers to actually use someone to take down their letter so they didn't have to write it. <clears throat> that seems to be Paul's practice too. So he's writing or dictating the letter here, addressing these new problems. So we begin with Paul's defense of his authority, uh, 10 and 11, though really everything is about that. And we, the section here we might title Paul's weapons and authority. We're talking about his spiritual weapons or how he's going to combat this problem. How's he going to deal with it? Um, and Paul's going to use spiritual weapons, obviously, to do this. He begins in verse 1 of chapter 10, By the humility and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you, I, Paul, who am timid. Now notice that's in quotation marks. Paul is uh, using irony here. I'll explain irony in just a moment, but he's just saying who am, you know, quote, timid, you know, I'm timid, timid with face to face with you, but so-called bold towards you went away. Uh, I beg you then, I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some people who think that we live by the standards of this world. I say here, it seems clear uh, from verse 1 that Paul had been accused of being courageous and bold when he's away from Corinth, that is in his correspondence to them, such as, you know, the severe letter, which we don't have, actually, um, but there's references, you know, to this kind of thing. Later on in verse 10, he'll say, for some say, quote, his letters are weighty and forceful, but in person he's unimpressive, and his speaking amounts to nothing. Even in 1 Corinthians 2, he talks about this issue. And so it, it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaim to you the testimony about God. One of the things that's going on in Corinth I've talked about an, a few times is that it's especially true in 1 Corinthians, but it's through both epistles, that Paul faces a problem in that he's sometimes criticized for not having a certain kind of rhetorical eloquence. Now, we live in a different age. Uh, people can run for office, politicians, and be hardly able to speak. Uh, I, I mean, Joe Biden, for instance, you know, I mean, you know, I mean, from what we saw, he could hardly read the teleprompter, apparently, but whatever. I don't, I'm not trying to make a political statement. I'm just saying here that uh, politicians who run don't necessarily have to be very eloquent speakers or very good speakers, but that was not true in the ancient world. And in the ancient world, uh, one of the, the kind of training that was highly prized was training in what's called rhetoric, the ability to speak and make arguments. That was done throughout our history, Western civilization until rather recent times. Uh, it's still done a little bit. I mean, in the sense when we when train preachers, we are training them, you know, in homiletics, you, you, you're trying to emphasize the ability to make arguments, to speak clearly, uh, and, and so forth. It's a rhetorical kind of thing. You know, I suppose lawyers, in a sense, are, uh, you know, on this same vein a little bit. 
But we don't value that as we once did, as it once was in the ancient world. So there were all kinds of schools of rhetoric, the ability to make arguments, uh, to speak extemporaneously and so forth. And Paul admits that he did not have that kind of training himself. So I didn't come with this kind of rhetorical flourishes and human wisdom for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with the demonstration of the Spirit's power. And we don't, don't take that to mean that we want a pastor who's a bumbling idiot, you know, who can't even speak or speak a coherent sentence. But the point is, uh, it's not uh, just it's not the persuasion of words, it's the persuasion of the word. <laughs> it's the ability to communicate the word. And, you know, the spirit, we pray, will do the uh, influencing and bring about the results. So that's one of the things Paul is facing here is that um, he, uh, he, uh, he's accused of being bold and and all this in his letters, but when he gets there, he doesn't make much, doesn't doesn't appear to be very uh, forceful, and and uh, he doesn't uh, speak much. I say here, uh, subservient and weak when he showed up in Corinth, and afraid to raise his voice when he gets here. Living Bible kind of paraphrases that nicely. When he gets here, he's a, just a different guy. This charge, Paul ironically repeats in verse one as an introduction to an appeal, I beg you, he says, to all the Corinthians regarding a vocal minority, some people, notice he says here, uh, some people, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be toward some people who think we live by the standards of this world. So Paul says, um, he, uh, he, uh, he repeats this as an introduction to all the Corinthians regarding a vocal minority who persisted in thinking that worldly standards and motives governed all his conduct and that he relied on human powers and methods in his ministry. And Paul, of course, doesn't. Um, now, the fact that Paul says some people rather than some of you is one of our first indications here that he's directing his comments toward people who are coming in from the outside, intruders who are coming into Corinth. We don't see that in 1 Corinthians at all, but we see it clearly here in 2 Corinthians. And I said, you know, Paul here is speaking uh, ironically, sarcastically even here when I say... Uh, uh, I, Paul, who am, quote, timid, I'm timid, you know, I'm really, what are we talking about here? Irony has two basic meanings. So we're going to see Paul using irony throughout this section, and he uses it in other places in his letters also. There's two basic ideas. Irony is, the first one is what we might call an ironic situation. Something is ironic. This is a combination of circumstances or result that's the opposite of what is or might be expected or considered appropriate. For example, the irony that the firehouse burned down. You know, we say, well, isn't that erotic? Something opposite happened of what you would expect. That's related to, but not exactly what we're seeing here. What we're looking at in Paul here is number two, what we might call ironic speech a method of humorous or subtly sarcastic expression in which the intended meaning of the words used is the direct opposite of their usual sense. For example, the irony of calling a stupid plan clever. You know, you've heard people say, well, isn't that clever? You know, somebody does something stupid and they say, well, oh, isn't that clever? No, we don't really mean it's clever. <laughs> Light irony of this kind is a form of humor. Severe irony is usually a form of sarcasm or satire. And that's what we have here in 2 
Corinthians. I say here next, what Paul wished to avoid on his forthcoming visit was a display of boldness, boldness when present, not absence. Nevertheless, he explains that he is ready to exercise his apostolic authority, whatever the outcome, if the Corinthians do not repudiate his opponents and mend their ways. So um, his humility uh, and gentleness uh, as a true servant of Christ should not be confused with timidity. He preferred to come to Corinth in the spirit of gentleness, he says. But, you know, he can come with a rod of iron. He tells the, in 1 Corinthians, he says, what do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a rod of discipline? Or shall I come in love with a gentle spirit? Saying Corinthians 13, he'll say, this is why I write these things when I'm absent, that when I come, I may not have to be harsh in my use of authority, the authority that the Lord gave me for building you up. Not The purpose was not for tearing you down. But that is one thing that can be done. He says in verse 3, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. I say here, Paul draws a clear distinction between living in the world and worldly conduct and techniques. Paul does not deny he lives in the everyday world of human existence with all its limitations and frustrations, trials. Uh, do I say trails there? <laughs> trials, I should say trials and tribulations. Uh, however, he is a spiritual, he, uh, he, is a, he is in a spiritual war, and spiritual warfare demands spiritual weapons, you know, like Ephesians 6. Our, you know, we're not battling against flesh and blood, but against, you know, spiritual forces, Paul says, against Satan, and he's opposing God, and that's the real battle here. It's not we're trying to conquer people physically. So a successful campaign at Corinth has to be waged in the spiritual realm using weapons, spiritual weapons, uh, not, you know, not worldly weapons, which he's thinking here, especially of rhetoric and argumentation, convincing people with fancy arguments and so forth. No, he's going to rely on spiritual weapons, which can really do things, accomplish things spiritually, demolish impregnable fortresses. He's thinking here as, you know, we're talking about war, or demolishing a fortress where evil is entrenched. Um, and, uh, you know, from which the gospel's attacked. The, the gospel's being attacked, of course, by, by Satan and all kinds of false teachers and so forth who are ultimately doing the work of Satan. And so what distinguishes uh, Paul's uh, weapons from those of the world is that Paul's weapons have divine power. Now, he doesn't identify these weapons, but they would include the kind of things we saw, you know, back in chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. Impurity, understanding, patience, and kindness in the Holy Spirit and in sincere love, in truthful speech, and in the power of God with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and the left. So we're doing, we're, we're, we're following God's rules here. We're, we're acting righteously, and that's a weapon against untruthfulness and sinfulness. Truth, speech, love, patience. These are the kind of spiritual weapons that will ultimately accomplish something. Uh, you're not just going to defeat somebody by, just, you know, by just verbally abusing them and, and, and verbally sort of defeating their arguments. You want, you, want, you want to really accomplish something, and that takes spiritual power, spiritual weapons. Uh, he says in verse 5, we demolish arguments and every pretension 
that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Paul now identifies the strongholds that crumble before the weapons of the Spirit, human reasoning and philosophies which are opposed to God, or as Paul expresses it in 1 Corinthians 3.19, the wisdom of this world. I mean, I'm reading a book right now. I'm thinking about naturalism, atheism, evolution. <laughs> the phrase every pretension refers to any human act or attitude that forms an obstacle to the emancipating knowledge of God contained in the gospel and thus keeps men in oppressive bondage to sin. Closer related is the expression, every thought. By this, Paul probably means, you know, every uh, human scheme or design that attempts to frustrate the divine plan. And there's bunches of them. <laughs> I mean, there's a whole worldview, anti-God worldview, naturalism, you know, everything that there is no power outside of just nature and the forces of science and evolution and <laughs> there's no God, you know. Um, these are attempts to frustrate the divine plan. Every act of disobedience, uh, Paul will say in verse six, we're trying to make, we're trying to bring things in obedience to Christ and punish disobedience. Therefore, you know, uh, in, I say here, uh, well, I'm, I'm thinking of uh, attempts to frustrate God's plan and therefore needs to be forcibly brought into obedience to Christ. And we can't do that. We, we have to use spiritual weapons to do that. God's spiritual weapons, the word, the truth. The, the imagery that Paul you know, uses, you can see here, is like of a military operation where you're in enemy territory and it, 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 you're trying to thwart every hostile battle plan that, that is being thrown up against universal allegiance to Christ. And that's what we're facing in the world today. You know, all kinds of things that are hostile to Christ, hostile to the truth of God. Uh, the whole sexual revolution, you know, the gender, every, all this stuff, you know. Um, Paul had ministered there in Corinth, so his, these people had come out of this darkness into the light. They had given up the wisdom of the world. They had become submissive to the lordship of Christ in thought as well as deed. And so he says, that's what we're trying to do, to take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And that's extremely hard to do because uh, this is contrary to depravity. It's contrary to our fallen natures. It's contrary to the, especially to the world we live in. I've lived long enough to see this change completely. I mean, to where, you know, the philosophy, I mean, it's always been there. It's always been there. Uh, but I was, you know, the philosophy of the day is, I mean, the, the most important thing you hear about that people say is nobody's going to tell me what to do. Nobody is going to tell me what to do. And this is, I mean, <laughs> people don't want to, don't say it sometimes. Christians don't say it, but it's right there. Nobody's telling me what to do. Uh, and it's taught in schools and everything. You know, do your own thing. Don't let anybody tell you what's right. You determine for yourself what's right. I mean, there's nothing new about this. It's been, I often think about this poem by a fellow by the name of William Ernest Henley called Invictus. Invictus is the Latin term for victus is victory, so in is not victory or unconquerable or undefeated. And he writes this poem back in 1875, but it's all about sort of rebellion against the restraints of scripture and God. Uh, the first stanza, he says, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. 
That's where the Invictus comes from. And in the last stanza, <laughs> he says, it matters not how straight the gate. Well, that's a reference right to Jesus, you know, the straight gate, the narrow gate, because wide is the gate that leads to instruction, to destruction. <laughs> so he's attacking, you know, any kind of biblical idea that in his day, he says, it matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. There's the reference to the scripture, you know. I don't really care what people say about the way you should go. And I don't care what any external authority like the Bible says. He says, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. There it is. Back in 1875. And Frank Sinatra saying, I did it my way. For all those who can remember <laughs> Frank Sinatra singing, you know, my way, my way. And that's that's the that's the thought we're up against here as Christians is that people demand and are even told that this is the right thing to do it your way. But Paul says, no, we have to bring our thoughts captive to Christ. We have to we have to we bring our thoughts in obedience to Christ, and that's Scripture. And it's not easy to do because we naturally rebel against that kind of thing, and our society applauds that kind of thing. Paul says in verse 6, And we will be ready to punish every act of disobedience once your obedience is complete. I say here, Paul is far from being a spiritual wimp. And if circumstances forced him, he's ready to turn from humility and gentleness to a stern assertion of his authority, from appeal to discipline. His plan of action was in two stages. First, there's the need to bring the Corinthians' obedience to completion. This would be achieved when they disassociate themselves from his opponents and fully recognize Paul's apostolic authority. Second, there was the punishment of every act of disobedience performed by his adversaries from Palestine or in any Corinthians who remained insubordinate. Precisely, you know, what punishment that would take, Paul does not state at this particular time. I'll talk about that in just a moment here, but you know, possibilities. But we get, I mentioned here for the first time that Paul's opponents I'm going to discuss them a little in a more detail here in just a moment, but but just to say, these outsiders are claim that they have a connection with Palestine, with Jerusalem, apparently the Jerusalem Church, and so they are questioning Paul's authority to be commanding or instructing the Corinthians versus them, and we'll I'll, I'll say more about that. The point here is it's, it's very important for Paul to bring the Corinthians around to uh, his side, to his way of thinking, which is the true way, before risking a face-to-face -face confrontation with those false teachers who, you know, and, and others who still opposed him. Unless the church is willing to recognize and su support spiritual discipline, uh, that discipline will be ineffective. That's true for our church. Unless our church believes in spiritual discipline as taught, church discipline as we call it, as taught in scripture, you know, that we have to deal with people in our congregation who are disobedient and will not repent, turn away, and, you know, then we have to deal with that. Um, so it will remain ineffective if if you don't have the church membership behind it. Um, an important principle, you know, emerges when verses five and six are compared. Obedience to Christ entails submission to his appointed representatives. Uh, Paul, if you're going to, you know, when you, when, when you look at what Paul says in verse five, uh, we want to bring every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. And then he says, once your obedience is complete, you know. So it's obedience to what Paul is teaching and saying them, you know, and that's true in 
of the scriptures. Have confidence in your leaders. Submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. For this, do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden for that would be of no benefit to you. Paul says in verse 7, you are judging by appearances. If anyone is confident that they belong to Christ, they should consider again that we belong to Christ just as much as they do. Now, again, remember, we talked about this plural you, plural we, uh, this plural we, this sort of editorial we or literary we, where Paul is really talking about himself here almost exclusively. You know, some, uh, some people are saying they belong to Christ, but uh, they should acknowledge that we belong to Christ just as much as they do. Now, I'll, let me explain in a minute what that means, we belong to Christ, because there's more involved than we might think there. I say here the Corinthians were judging Paul and his opponents by outward appearances. Judged by external appearances, Paul's rivals possess some impressive credentials. So I'm just going to jump ahead here and around in 2 Corinthians. Uh, we see impeccable heritage. In chapter 11, Paul's going to say, are they Hebrews? So am I. So these people who came in and were opposing Paul from the outside, from Palestine, claim to be Jewish. Are they Abra Israelites? So am I. Are they Abrahams? So am I. So they were claiming some special authority because of their Jewish heritage. Letters of reference. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? These, these people apparently had letters of recommendation, some sort of letter from the, somebody in the Jerusalem church or somebody real or fake, we don't know, that they're using against Paul, skillful in speaking. For some say his letters are weighty and forceful, but in person, he is unimpressive and his speaking amounts to nothing. He says in 11.6, I may not be a train as, trained as a speaker, but I do have knowledge. Kind of a take charge personality. In fact, you even put up with anyone who enslaves you or exploits you or takes advantage of you or puts on airs or slaps you in the face. So these, these Corinthians are following these people or, or treating them, you know, <laughs> pretty miserably, and they seem to like it or think that, I guess, that designates that these are authoritative people, you know. I say here, Paul's opponents were aware that the most successful way to undermine his effectiveness was to cast doubt on the genuineness of his apostleship. Remember, an apostle is someone appointed by Christ to represent him. They speak for Christ. Now, when the apostles died off, there have not been any more apostles. Now, of course, the Pope of Rome claims to be an apostle. Uh, that he's When he speaks from the chair, ex cathedra, he's speaking for Christ. Uh, and there are certain uh, Pentecostal or you know, some denominations who claim that we still have apostles. Now, they, they water that down. Uh, they don't claim it's ex usually, usually they don't. It's exactly like first century apostles, but some do. Um, so they're attacking his, his apostleship. If his converts could be persuaded that he lacked apostolic credentials, they would cease to believe his teaching. Um, so they attempted to use these credentials that we've been talking about here, that I'm listing here, um, as a measuring stick to determine who was a genuine apostle, who belongs to Christ. Now notice that expression. If anyone is confident, verse 7, that they belong to Christ, they should consider, again, that we belong to Christ. Um, so this claim to belong to Christ means more than what we mean by it as we commonly use it today. If someone says, I belong to Christ, we, we would say, we think, well, they just, they're just a Christian. That's a Christian way to say you're a Christian, you belong to Christ. Well, obviously, in this context, that means much more in light of the fact that 
in chapters 10 through 13, Paul is defending his apostleship. This is a claim we belong to Christ that these false teachers are, are using. It's a claim to be Christ's special representative, an apostle. It's, it's unlikely these intruders are just saying, hey, I'm a Christian. <laughs> That's not much of a claim. I'm a Christian. You know, and Paul says, I'm a Christian too. Now, there's more involved here in this belonging to Christ. This is some sort of special authority representation, an apostleship, probably. I say, what, to be, what, what ought to be obvious to Paul's readers is that even granted for the sake of argument the claims of his opponents to be Christ, now he's going to deny that later on, that his opponents really are Christ, he's going to call them false apostles. You know, he, he himself is, is equally so, you know, whatever they claim, he's got all these credentials. Uh, so Paul is arguing here that the claims that they're making, these claims to make a, making a subjective claim based on personal conviction, uh, you can't grant that to the opponents and not grant it to him. If they can make these kind of claims, you know, based upon these personal characteristics and these things, you've got to, you've got to uh, grant him the same thing. You, you can't deny, you can't deny his apostleship based on these same uh, kind of claims. He's got, he can, he, he can identify with every one of these as we'll see. And, and later he'll mention more objective criteria for apostolic credentials later on, as we'll see. So in all this, his motive is not really personal vindication. Uh, his desire is to, uh, to defend the Corinthian church against uh, apostasy. Apostasy means turning away from the faith you once held. And if you follow these false teachers, then you're going to be turning away from the truth. Now, it's not spelled out exactly what these false teachers are saying, but we sort of gather that there is a similar vein as we saw in Galatians with the Judaizers there coming from Palestine and so forth. And Paul calls that a false gospel, another gospel, and so forth. So Paul sees this, what they're teaching, as a real danger to the truth of Christianity. Verse 8, so even if I boast somewhat freely about the authority the Lord gave us for building you up, rather than tearing you down, I will not be ashamed of it. Even if it might be true that Paul felt compelled to boast somewhat freely about his apostolic authority, he was confident that he would not be embarrassed by a charge of exaggeration or deception. Paul's boast could be substantiated from the results of his ministry. Everybody knew that the result of Paul's ministry had been the building up of the Corinthian church. You know, God gave him this authority, this apostolic authority to build the church, which he talks about, you know, a lot in 1 Corinthians, building up of the church. Uh, while the, the, the presence of the, the false apostles only produced friction and division, tearing you down. That's, what, that's what's really happening. Um, in Galatians, if you remember the argument there, Paul is defending his apostleship there also against the false teachers. And there he emphasizes the divine origin of his call and the divine origin of the gospel. Here he stresses the divine origin of his authority and the fact that it's being employed for their common good. He's going to say these false teachers are not doing it for your good. They're doing it for their good, for their glory, for their uh, esteem. Verse 9, I do not want to seem to be trying to frighten you with my letters. For some say his letters are weighty and forceful, but in person he's unimpressive and his speaking amounts to nothing. Such people should realize that what we are in our letters when we are absent, we will be in our actions when we are present. 
Paul could legitimately boast about his God-given authority, although Paul could legitimately boast about his God-given authority, he refrains from expanding his simple claim in verse 8, lest he appear to be frightening the Corinthians into submission by weighty and forceful letters, as he says. Um, Paul didn't want to give any substance to the charge that, you know, he was bold and impressive only when he was absent. In, 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 in some people's eyes, Paul's speaking ability was nothing to brag about. You know, he says here, amounts to nothing. <laughs> However, Paul reminds them that when present with them, he would act in precise accord with his letters if he was pushed to that. Verse uh, chapter 13, he says, I already gave you a warning when I was with you the second time. That was the severe visit. That was the second time. I mean, the painful visit. I'm sorry, the painful visit. I now repeat it while absent. On my return, I will not spare those who sinned earlier or any of the others. Verse 10 of that chapter. This is why I write these things when I'm absent, that when I come, I might not have to be harsh in the use of my authority. The authority the Lord gave me for building you up, not for tearing you down. Same thing he says here. But, but he can tear people, he can tear, he can tear down. So Paul has, uh, Paul has uh, quite a, a bit of authority. Um, think about various incidents in the Paul's life. Uh, I could name a number of them, but just think about his first missionary journey. On the first missionary journey, he and Barnabas sail to the island of Cyprus. From Antioch. And they traveled the whole island until they came to Paphos, where they met a Jewish sorcerer, a false prophet named Bargesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. The proconsul intelligent man sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the sorcerer, that's what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Then Paul, who was also called, Saul was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Ghost, looked straight at Elimus and said, you are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that's right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. You will never stop perverting the ways of the Lord. Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You're going to be blind for a time and not even able to see the light of the sun. Immediately mist and darkness came over him. He groped about seeking someone to lead him by the hand. There's apostolic authority if he has to. He can tear people down. Paul can tear people down if he needs to. That's not why he was given that authority, and that's not what he wants to use it for. He wants to use it to build up the church. But he'll, he'll, he'll do what he has to do, he's telling the Corinthians here, if it comes to it. All right, so uh, Paul talks about his weapons and his authority. Now he talks about his sphere of service. That is, uh, Paul is operating within a certain uh, sphere of service that God has given him, designated him to operate in. He just doesn't, you know, pick a field and go. God has directed him to go to certain places. Uh, I say here, now Paul demonstrates what the opposition to him was all about. And it was not because the false teachers were con concerned about the true spiritual welfare of the Corinthians. The, the goal of the, these false teachers, as we see, was to come to Corinth and expand their sphere of influence by encroaching on the territory that God had given to the Apostle Paul to evangelize. Boundaries, again, these boundaries were established by God himself, as we'll see. So Paul now, you know, takes the offensive and levels a number of charges, actually three charges here against these opponents who are coming into Corinth and they have no business being there. Now they're, they're trying to kick Paul out of Corinth and become the uh, grand poobas there, but uh, Paul will have nothing to do with it. Verse 12, for we do not dare to classify <clears throat> or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves. When they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, 
they are not wise. I say here, Paul's first charge is that his opponents were not wise. It's rather foolish for them to appeal to their own conduct as normative and then find great satisfaction in always measuring up to that standard. <laughs> so the implication, you know, is clear here. If the Corinthians tried to assess Paul's credentials against the artificial and the subjective criteria established by his detractors, he's going to be, he's going to be, that would be just as foolish, you know. Verse uh, 13, we, however, will not boast beyond proper limits, but we will confine our boasting to the sphere of service God has assigned to us, a sphere that also includes you at Corinth, you Gentiles. We're not going too far in our boasting, as would be the case if we had not come to you. For we did not get as far as you with the gospel of Christ. Paul's second charge against his opponents is a breach of contract. The activity of the false apostles at Corinth encroached on Paul's legitimate province because it violated the agreement of Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. So what I'm referring to here is, remember, Paul was saved on the Damascus Road. And uh, <clears throat> ultimately, he preached, um, he preached in uh, Jerusalem, and he got into trouble, you know, he got, uh, and he, he ultimately ends up going back to Tarsus. And then uh, in Acts chapter 12, um, Barnabas is sent up to the church at Antioch to see what's going on up there by the church of Jerusalem. And this is basically a Gentile church. And so he goes and searches for Paul in Tarsus and brings him to Antioch. And Paul and Barnabas minister there in Antioch. And then the church at Antioch decides to uh, send Paul and Barnabas out on a first mission, on that first missionary journey, Acts 13, and Acts 14. And when they come back to Antioch, we find that there are some people who are saying, some professed Christians who have come from Jerusalem and saying, listen, you Gentiles up here in this church of Antioch, you've got to obey the law and be circumcised. And so Paul and Barnabas, uh, we got we got to hash this out. This is wrong. This is false gospel. Uh, you know, when Paul went on that first missionary journey in Acts 13 and 14, he didn't circumcise any Gentiles. He didn't say, you Gentiles in Antioch, of Pisidia, on Cyprus, and Derby and Lystra, uh, you don't, he didn't tell them you got to keep the law. He didn't circumcise any Gentiles. So, um, so they get back and Paul says, uh, Galatians, he talks about this incident when they went back to Jerusalem for the Jerusalem council. Then after 14 years, I went up to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along. I went in response to Revelation. And meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, I presented to them the gospel that I preached among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running uh, my race in vain, yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy our freedom, which we have in Christ, and to make us slaves. We did not give to them, we did not give into them for a moment, so the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. As for those who held were held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. Remember on the, on the road to Damascus, Paul, Jesus tells Paul, you're going to be my apostle to the Gentiles. Paul uses that a couple times. He's the apostle Christ represent to the Gentiles. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Cephas, and John, 
those esteemed as pillars in the Jerusalem church, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. All they asked was we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. And that's what Paul is doing with this offering that we've been talking about. He's fulfilling this commitment he made to the Jerusalem church. So um, the false apostles would certainly have been aware of this agreement in Galatians 2, uh, particularly the fact that uh, Paul had been entrusted with the special responsibility of propagating the gospel to the Gentiles or the uncircumcised. I say here, Paul refused to boast of what had occurred beyond the limits of his own ministry as the apostle to the Gentiles. He says, we won't boast beyond limits. We'll confine our boasting to the sphere that God has assigned to us, which that sphere includes you. We are not coming too far in our boasting, uh, for we did not get as far as you with the gospel of Christ. So uh, I say here, in this boasting about his sphere at Corinth and appealing by implication of the very existence of the Corinthian church as the vindication of his apostles, he was not going too far or overstepping his limits is what we're talking about. I wasn't going too far. I'm not overstepping the limits since historically his God-ordained field had included Corinth. Um, this, you know, this expression here, we did not get as far as you, probably means we were the first to reach you. We were the first to reach you with the gospel. Um, so it was Paul's normal policy to preach in unevangelized Gentile areas. Uh, so the Corinthians had become part of his field because he was the first apostle to reach them. He, he explains that later on. Remember I said that he's in Corinth, I mean, he's in Macedonia right now. He's writing 2 Corinthians. After he writes this letter, he's going to come to Corinth. And he writes at Corinth the letter to the Romans saying, listen, uh, I have accomplished my ministry here in the, uh, in the eastern part of the Roman Empire. And I'm going to come to Rome, and I'm hoping that you will support my ministry in Rome to the rest, to the rest of the uh, Gentile world, to, even to Spain. He says, he tells the Romans, I will not venture to speak of anything except Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I've said and done. By the power of signs and wonders through the power of the Spirit of God, so far from Jerusalem all the way to Illyricum, I have proclaimed the gospel of Christ. It's always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. So all the way from down here in the right corner, Jerusalem, all the way up here to Illyricum, up here, that's where Illyricum is. Um, Paul had preached the gospel. Now, actually, we don't have any reference in the book of Acts to Illyricum, but we know Paul was up here in this area, Macedonia. So he obviously went up here too. He's preached the gospel. He's preached the gospel in this whole eastern part of the empire. And uh, that's what God uh, gave him to do. So now, uh, you know, he says, I was, I was uh, following God's order and, and uh, what God told me to do to, to do that. And I was within my rights to bring the gospel to you. I say here, Paul was not opposed to others helping him in the ministry. But the false, you know, that's 1 Corinthians uh, 3, where Apollos, remember, had come to Corinth and, be of, and had been of help to Paul. But this, these false teachers were not in Corinth to aid Paul, as Apollos, you know, had, had aided Paul, but to supplant him, to supplant his apostolic ministry. They're trying to kick him out. <laughs> he, he says, neither do we go beyond... Others, uh, excuse me, neither do we go beyond our limits by boasting of the work done by others. Our hope is that 
your faith continues to grow, our sphere of activity among you will greatly expand so that we can preach the gospel in the regions beyond you. For we do not want to boast about work already done in someone else's territory, which is what <laughs> these false teachers were doing who could come to Corinth. Paul's third charge is that his opponents have been prodding themselves for the work already done by others. I mean, they have boasted about the spiritual vitality of the Corinthians, uh, probably boasted, and they apparently attributed what happened in Corinth to their activity, you know, and, and, and not because of what Paul had done. And apparently some of the Corinthians were sort of following this idea that, uh, you know, that they were following this claim of the false teachers. Um, I'll say here, the Corinthian intruders presented another serious problem for Paul and that they were dis uh, disrupting his evangelistic strategy. Um, and as you can see from what he says, we get his strategy here in verse 15 and verse uh, 16, especially. Um, his strategy involved a couple of steps. The first was to significantly expand the area activity among his converts. Our hope is that as your faith continues to grow, our sphere of activity among you will greatly expand. See, it was Paul's practice to evangelize the major urban areas and then let his converts reach the outlying areas. He didn't go to every single city. He just went to the major cities. Now, this is probably what happened in the city of Ephesus. I mean, he, Paul was in the city of Ephesus. But if you look at, you know, the book of Revelation, you got these cities of Asia Minor, these seven cities, and, and like Colossae. And we know from the, the epistle to the Colossians that Paul hadn't been to Colossae, uh, apparently. He didn't establish a church there, obviously, in Colossae. Um, he didn't establish a church. It was established by a colleague of Paul. Epaphras had established the church. So Paul is writing to a church that one of his disciples had established. So that was Paul's, you know, go to a major city like Ephesus and let, and then let the gospel be spread by others to these other cities. Uh, and so that's what Paul uh, wanted to happen here. But this could only happen if the faith of his converts continued to grow. He says, as your faith continues to grow, now, the second step in Paul's strategy, as we see here, was to preach the gospel in the regions beyond his present converts. So Paul wanted to use the Corinthian church to sponsor his evangelistic efforts in areas beyond them. They, they would form sort of a base of operations, like he's writing to the Romans about. But all this was a hope because the Corinthians were hindering the advance of the gospel by not backing Paul fully at this point. Uh, Paul felt he couldn't pursue pioneer evangelism in the western part of the Mediterranean when his converts in the eastern part of the Mediterranean were unsettled and in dangers of apostasy. So in this sense, you know, everything, Paul's future was in the hands of the Corinthians. I've got to have a stable church here. You know, this was what happens to missionaries sometimes. They get sent out by a church. I've seen this a number of times. They get they get sent out by their uh, their home church or a sponsoring church, and then the church disintegrates. And where does that leave the missionary? So that's what Paul is facing here, in that uh, sort of in a sense. Uh, consolidation has to precede advance. So he's got to consolidate the gospel here in Corinth. Verse seventeen. But let no let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. For it's not the one who commends himself who is approved, like these false teachers, but the one whom the Lord commends. As in 1 Corinthians 1.31, Paul cites Jeremiah 9.24 here, that the one who boasts boasts in the Lord. Paul's opponents were quick to boast about work already done in another man's territory. They're boasting about Paul's work in Corinth as their own. But for Paul, boasting was illegitimate, whether it involves one's own accomplishments or status. Uh, it's especially true if one boasts about another person's achievements as though they were their own, like he says, verse 16 here. Uh, 
For the Christian, the only boasting is in the Lord. That's the only legitimate. That is boasting of what Jesus Christ has done for him or through him or can do through him. Uh, I say here, this kind of self-commendation Paul's opponents practice is in reality a disqualification, as we'll see. Only those who boast in the Lord and so give God the glory uh, give the uh, uh, give God the glory. Do him will enjoy God's commendation at the judgment seat, as Paul says in first in five nine. All right, let's uh, we better stop here. I think for tonight, and let's see where we're at. Okay, right here at chapter the end of chapter ten. And we will pick up here, Lord willing, next time, chapter 11. Let me uh, stop this share. And uh, let me quit this.